Welcome to Keith Knight, Don't Tread on Anyone and the Libertarian Institute. Today, I am honored to be joined by David Cole. You might know him as the Republican Party animal. He is a columnist at Talkies Magazine. He works there with Pat Buchanan, my hero, and Ann Coulter, and a number of other columnists. Mr. Cole, thank you so much for your time. Oh, it's a pleasure, Keith. Glad to be here. Very glad to be here. Thank you for having me on. Well, I am so honored that I got a copy of this book before it was taken <laughs> off Amazon. Where can people get this? I don't even know where to link people to. Yeah, that, that's the thing. Um, two things happened pretty much in a row. My publisher, Adam Parfrey, passed away in 2018. Um, and his sister took over the company. And in 2019, she decided to take the company woke. So they got rid of several titles that they considered to be uh, too dangerous for their blood. So they uh, took the book out of print, but there were still a lot of copies floating around in the world. So you could sell them on Amazon. And there was always an uh, eight books at Amazon. There would always be copies. But then last year, 2021, the uh, sitcom star Deborah Messing decided to uh, lobby Amazon to not allow the sale of my book at all, even in used editions. And she was successful in that. So um, you can't sell any version of it on Amazon. Occasionally, a version will pop up on uh, eBay, and they started about $500 there. Um, now that, I, I try to remember a time when you could get the book on Amazon for 19 bucks, and now the rare copies you come across start at 500 I am actively looking uh, for a new publisher, but it's, it's an arduous process because um, it's got to be somebody. If the Amazon ban continues, and it and likely will, then it's got to be a publisher who can move the book without having to rely on Amazon, which is a, a very difficult proposition these days because Amazon kind of has a bit of a stranglehold on the publishing industry. Unbelievable stuff. Well, I was watching a uh, speech you gave with Ann Coulter where you had said there are two books that you recommend to people that they need to read. I want to go over both of those relatively briefly. The first one is titled The Soviet Impact on Society. My favorite quote was from page 186. He says, uh, more or less, these acts of open violence, temporary expropriation of private property and destruction of machinery, such as the ripping out of gears and transmissions belt, are perpetrated by the communist wing of the labor unions, not in order to obtain better working conditions for the worker, but to create a definite schism between employer and employee. Why is the left constantly creating these schisms, employer versus employee, black versus white, man versus woman, rich versus poor? Well, you have to put the things, it, 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 what you just mentioned, of course, is eternal. I mean, it's going on now the same as it went on 100 years ago. But in terms of the, the book, The Soviet Impact on Society by Dagobert Runes, um, that was a book that was concentrating solely on the post-World War I, um, the uh, concerted effort by by leftists, by Marxists, by communists, to disrupt the order in in Europe. And Ruins goes country by country, 
uh, and region by region, like the Bavaria, the, the short-lived Bavarian communist dictatorship. And he goes into other parts of, of Europe where either these uh, attempts at disruption were either successful or unsuccessful. He talks about Hungary, he talks about Romania and, uh, and Poland. And the, the importance of that particular book, apart from, as you've pointed out, showing you that the stuff that's going on now was going on 100 years ago as, as, as well. But the greater historical importance of that book is you can't understand uh, the 1930s. You can't understand the rise of Nazism uh, and what everything that would eventually lead to uh, the Second World War. You can't understand any of that without understand, uh, understanding what the European mindset was uh, following all of these attempts at disruption uh, all throughout Europe, all throughout what used to be the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the countries surrounding it, coupled with uh, once Stalin took power, coupled with very ruthless expansionism, uh, attempts at expansionism all over the place as the Soviet Union began collecting more and more territory. Um, so the, the importance of, the, of that particular book as uh, an historical artifact is um, when you finish reading it and then you realize you put yourself in the position of a German having to choose between different political parties in the 1930s, it, and there were many of them. The Nazis were all were just one of many the communists were just one of many. There were all kinds of political parties in 1932 that ran the gamut from far left to far right and establishment, everything in between. So you have to, to put yourself in the position of a German facing some of these ballot box choices in 1932, being aware that um, the communists have already tried to take over Bavaria, and they were briefly successful. They were run out on a rail, but uh, they certainly uh, created a lot of misery during the brief time they were there. And the communists have been trying all these other countries surrounding Germany to um, destabilize and to create communist dictatorships there. And uh, at that point, uh, Germans had seen what Stalin was doing in his backyard and doing in Ukraine. So. There is a misconception that people in Germany, especially the ones who, who supported the Nazi party, that they were paranoid. Uh, it is not in any way to endorse supporting the Nazi party back then, but it wasn't paranoia. There was a genuine and uh, quite legitimate fear of what the Soviets were doing and what they wanted to do if there was not a strong enough will on the part of Germany to push back against it. So a lot of it was, was not at all paranoia. And you know that old saying, just because uh, you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. And even some of the people who maybe really did come across as very paranoid, but there was still a legitimate threat. Uh, there was still legitimate threat from the Soviets and of course, as you mentioned at the beginning, a lot of the Soviet tactic carried on by leftists today is to drive wedges between worker and management and between uh, races. And, and back in the, 
1930s between religions. You know, it's not such a big thing anymore today. Everybody's concerned these days about race. You know, that's one of the things I like to point out, not to get off on a tangent, but one of the things I like to point out to people, the left, the left big shtick right now, you know, for the last you know, 20 years or so, but especially ramped up within the last 10 years, we have to stamp out racism. We have to stamp out white supremacy. Any white person who maybe thinks that they might be smarter uh, or less criminal than a black, well, we have to crush them, even if they're not doing anything, even if they're just thinking these thoughts to themselves privately among their friends, we have to crush them. <clears throat> it's an interesting twist because that's how it used to be about religion. There used to be in the, in the Western world, and there still is in other parts of the world, but I'm just concentrating right now in the West. It used to be we have to crush the people who think that, that we're going to hell, that we're not going to heaven. And if you really break it down, which is more insulting? Uh, somebody who says, because of your race, I think I'm a couple of IQ points smarter than you. Versus someone who says, because of your religion, your grandma's burning in hell, your father's burning in hell. And you're going to burn in hell. Right now, your beloved grandma is having hot coals shoved up her ass and speared by pitchforks. Okay, that's insulting too. But we learned to live with it. We kind of learned to get along. At some point, the post-World War II era, the West made a very intelligent decision where after centuries of fighting over this, who's going to hell thing. People are like, you know what? Okay, you say I'm going to hell and maybe I say you're going to hell, but we can still go to work every day and work side by side. And I'm not gonna burn your house down and you're not gonna burn my house down. And we can agree to disagree about whose grandma is currently burning in hell. Um, it was a good move for society because after so many centuries, of people slaughtering each other over this thing of who's going to hell. We just sort of agreed to disagree. But now the left has brought it right back with the race thing, because now we're told that we have to wage holy war and crusade against anyone who might have racially improper views or, or who might maybe think that perhaps black people don't do as well at STEM or perhaps Asian people do better at STEM. Um, and now we've got to crush those people. What, what I wish we could come around to is that sense of that same sense of detente that we got about the going to hell thing where we're like, you might think this about my race. I might think this about, about your race, but you know what? We, we don't have to crush each other. That would be a good thing. But right now race is what is being used by the left as a wedge issue, as a divisive thing. And also as a, it's a crusade, uh, whipping people into a kind of frenzy where they have tremendous hostility against the neighbors and against the random people they see online who they don't even know, except they know that they hate them. Um, so uh, it's a long way of saying that yes, these wedge issues and this, this driving this, uh, this, this uh, wedge between groups of people went on back then, it goes on now. The specific adjectives can change, but the basic dynamics remain the same.
And how are they extracting power once this wedge is created? Because you could see a competing theory. They want everyone unified so they could be more or less the monarch of this society. If everyone supports one policy, well, and they represent that policy, then they'd have a lot of power. How are they gaining power by creating division? Well, a lot of it has to do with um, trying to dismantle the whole notion of, of merit. The, the entire notion of um, reward for a better job than the other guy is doing, because that's also something that, that communists have always wanted to, to try to do uh, and succeeded in many cases. Um, but if, if you stop looking at a person, an individual success at a job or at a skill, and instead, you simply start classifying them as uh, you're you're automatically worse because this is your skin color. You don't get the job because this is your skin color. Um, once once you stop looking at who's doing a good job and stop rewarding them for doing a good job, and instead start penalizing them or rewarding them based on genetic features that they were born with, that's a way of um, Taking down, I mean, what, what Jefferson would have called that the natural aristocracy, the people who just rise to a uh, to a task and do it well. Society's always depended on those people. You can go back to, I'm sure this goes back before even the first records were recorded, the first the first language was ever put to parchment or carved into stone. There's always that person who just figured out how to do something. And could do it a little better, maybe put a little more thought into it. Maybe they had a little more, whether we're talking about construction or agriculture or hunting or anything, there's always that that one or several people who just start doing it better. Other people learn from them. and But there's also going to be those people who are going to be somewhat jealous. Uh, you can imagine in caveman times, look at Thag. All the ladies like Thag because he he built that new spear. Oh, he invented that damn spear, and now he's killing all the animals, fashioning all his ladies in fur coats. I hate that Thag. You know what? Thag's got a big nose, and I think people with big noses, uh, they're they're up to something. That there's a we have to start to we can't let the big nose people. Uh, have say over us, and then immediately you get this tiered society because some people are jealous of the, the people who do it, who do it better. Um, that's a, that's a part of human nature. One of the things that communism was always good at doing was harnessing the most base and ugly parts of, of human nature, which we all have inside of us somewhere. Um, We've all had moments of jealousy and envy. We've all had moments of self-pity where we don't get something that we think we deserved. And so we want to lash out at someone, want to blame someone. Um, so uh, the left is, is very good at harnessing that. And, and uh, so, again, in a roundabout way to answer your question, when you start to pull down the people at the top who are doing well and who are skilled at doing things, then skill loses its meaning. It's like the whole um, the, the racial woke nonsense that you, that they put into math and science these days, where it's no longer about solving the equation. It's 
no longer about coming up with a solid study that can be peer reviewed. Instead, it's simply about equity and giving an equal voice to, to everybody. I mean, um, the, the story Harrison Bergeron went into this how many decades ago? I mean, there, there, were, there were prescient authors who foresaw exactly something like this happening. And as in Harrison Bergeron, once uh, skill no longer matters, there's no difference between a skilled ballet dancer or a fat guy just flopping around on stage. Um, it becomes easier to control society because uh, the um, what we have normally gone by in the past, which is who can do something well, no longer means anything. And once you can stock the cabinet, your company, whatever, once you can stock them with weak-minded people who are not being judged on, on skill, people who basically couldn't get that job on their own, they're relying on you, you gave it to them, you can take it away as well because they're not getting anything on skill. A skilled worker always has a bargaining chip. A skilled worker can always say to their boss, okay, I think I deserve a raise. And if you feel you don't want to give me a raise, well, there are a hundred other companies that would pay to have me uh, in their employ. So skilled workers always have that back door, that exit, if they don't like where they are at present. But if you're just bringing in unskilled people based on their race, based on gender, based on whatever, uh, they're relying on you like a baby to its mama because they, they a baby can't survive without mommy. You can't put a baby out in the street and tell a six-month-old, go feed yourself. Um, so it's the same with, with workers who are, or, or politicians, cabinet members, like I think cabinet members of administration, when they're brought on for reasons other than skill, they become especially reliant on the person who brought them in, and therefore they're more pliable and uh, uh, easier to use and manipulate. I love that term, natural aristocracy, that was first introduced to me as the iron law of oligarchy. Uh, James Burnham writes about this where he says, okay, imagine you're not the bourgeoisie, but you're the workers and you form a union. Well, not everyone wants to go to the union meeting. Only some people do. Who does the talking at that union meeting? People who are good speakers. Who gets their, uh, who gets their point across in such an effective way that they get to pick the rules that the union goes by? Well, like 0.001% of people in the union. So this iron law of oligarchy always exists. So this means that under any society, communism, fascism, socialism, primitivism, uh, anything, that the left will be able to point at this inequality because it always exists. And they never run out of these excuses because it really is an iron law. I love that term, natural aristocracy. Yeah, absolutely. The other book you recommend is Treason by Ann Coulter. There is so much in this book. I, I think we're going to have to just stick to the first page. She says, liberals have a gift for striking a position on the side of treason. You could be talking about Scrabble, and they would instantly leap to the anti-American position. She goes on to talk about the left's obsession with the crimes of the West and their Rousseauian respect for savages all flow from this subversive Goal. Liberals invented the myth of McCarthyism to delegitimize questions about their own patriotism. There is so much in there. Why is the left so obsessed with the crimes of the West, which, while bad, are in no way unique to the West? Well, 
there was a reason that at that event that Anne and I did together, uh, there's a reason that I mentioned the uh, Soviet Impact on Society book and Treason side by side, because in a way, uh, what I like about them both is very similar. The same way that the Soviet Impact on Society uh, is a good primer for why a lot of Germans were not paranoid about Soviet expansionism. Well, Treason is a great book to read to learn that the people concerned about Soviet infiltration in the post-World War II era were also not being paranoid. Uh, McCarthy, but specifically the House Un-American Activities Committee, whether one approves of their methods or not, but it is a simple truth that Anne presents tons of facts for. It's a simple truth that the Soviets absolutely did have people crawling in our institutions. Um, and they had been doing that since the 20s. Uh, and so it's become a myth that there were no Soviet agents in American society, that that uh, it, it was always just uh, some dumb guy who put his name on a piece of paper in 1931 and didn't even know what it was about. Oh, I joined the Communist Party? Oh my gosh, I, I was just trying to impress a chick. Um, but in fact, we know, for example, that the Soviets tried to take over the Writers Guild of America in the 30s. They uh, attempted to infiltrate quite a few unions. Uh, they were in uh, our intelligence apparatus. The Soviets put a lot of stock in infiltration. And we know after the fall of the Soviet Union and, and the, the release of, of records and information, we know that that Algier Hess was indeed a spy. We know that the Rosenbergs uh, were certainly guilty, the husband especially. There, there's always going to be a certain debate about to what extent Ethel Rosenberg was the second in command or whether there were there was someone worse who kind of sold out Ethel to save their own skin. But all the same, we know the Rosenbergs were guilty. We know that Algier Hiss was guilty. We, we know that Whit Whitaker Chambers a mess of a man, but he was right. Sometimes you can be a fat, drunken, drunkard, smoking mess of a man, and you can still be right. Um, so that's the brilliance of Anne's book there, and that's why it complements the Soviet impact on society, because it, both books are kind of about how um, uh, what the liberal establishment, what the leftist establishment, the media, what they tell us about how, oh, all these people were paranoid. Hitler was paranoid about communism. And uh, McCarthy and Huack, they were paranoid about infiltration. Uh, again, it's not, a, not to support Hitler's methods, certainly. And it's not necessarily to support Huack or McCarthy's methods. But they were not paranoid. There was absolutely stuff going on with Soviet infiltration. and. Uh, they decided to take it on. Again, uh, their method, good or bad, but they at least decided to take it on. And um, that, which is uh, uh, kind of inevitable, especially considering the devastation that some of this infiltration almost uh, caused. Uh, one of the uh, best examples being the Morgenthau Plan for post war Germany, um, which was 
influenced and to some extent ghost-authored to a great extent by a guy named Harry Dexter White, who was a proven Soviet agent. And it's, it's largely thought that White manipulated Morgenthau. Morgenthau hated the Germans. It was a, a pathological hatred. I don't want to judge the man too harshly. He was Jewish, of course, and uh, many Jews had a hatred of the Nazis that is not undeserved. Uh, but it's it's generally believed that Harry Dexter White used uh, Morgenthau's uh, emotional, visceral hatred of the Germans to help construct a post-war plan that was so brutal, so... Uh, horrific in the way it was going to treat the Germans, that the idea was it would eventually drive all the Germans in the Western zone to accept Soviet rule as a, as, as a relief from what the Morgenthau plan was doing to them. Uh, thankfully, Truman ended up ending the Morgenthau plan before it could ever come to that and replacing it with the Marshall Plan. But um, that's just one example of how Soviet infiltrators in that era were really trying to create a tremendous amount of misery for their own benefit. And uh, these are all things that I, I recommend both books, of course, uh, Treason, you can buy on Amazon easily uh, because it's, it's still in print and you can get a very reasonably priced copy. Uh, the other book's a little harder to find, but I recommend uh, your viewers uh, to try to hunt down both books. When you talk about differences between right and left, I was always raised to believe the left cares about the poor, the right cares about the rich. And then as I got older, it was, well, the right cares about foreign policy, the left cares about domestic policy. I, it was so difficult to really nail down the actual difference between these two, uh, between these two groups. What would you say is the defining characteristic that separates left from right? What we're seeing a little bit of, I don't want to say a realignment these days, but what we're seeing, there are still old school FDR leftists. They're older. Uh, some of them are, are much older. Some of them are hippies, uh, people of the hippie generation, who are still trying to hold fast to those old views, helping the worker helping the working man. Um, but to get back to what you were saying about wedge issues, a, a prime example of that, the left was always, always presented itself as the, uh, the place for women, for feminism. The, these, we are the people who fight for the rights of women, equal pay, the ERA, um, pro-choice, we, we are there for you, women. We, we're against the patriarchy. We're against the chauvinists. Well, now, uh, feminism is actually starting to drift a bit rightward because the left has become obsessed with transgenderism. Uh, the left has become obsessed with the notion that biological women don't exist, that, that none of it's biological, that women, it, woman is a social construct and that a, a transgender man is the same as a woman, that is driving some feminists away from the left. And uh, the right is kind of 
starting to welcome them in, saying, well, we have our, we certainly have our disagreements, but we, if we agree on the reality of biological sex and that uh, men can't get pregnant and that men can't menstruate and that, I mean, I, I personally believe in every human being's right to live any way they want. Eh? Somebody wants to put on a wig and, and wear a bra. I mean, a man wants to put on a wig and wear a bra and call himself anything. God bless. It, consenting adults should be able to do anything they, they want to. But uh, there are attacks against basic biology that we're all now being expected to agree with, whether we agree with them or not. It, it's a matter of conscience at this point, because people who genuinely simply don't, don't believe that a guy in a wig is an actual woman are being told you can't think that anymore. Um, so we're seeing a wedge right there between the the, that, the left and feminism. Uh, now it's an old old uh, coalition there that's being broken up, and it's it's being broken up pretty recently. I mean, this is stuff that's only come up in the last decade in any major way. The left used to be the first ones fighting for women's sports. Uh, for equality for women's sports, for the, for women on college campuses and high schools being able to have their own sport that gets the exact same funding, the exact same support from the administration and the exact same facilities. And now that very left, they're the ones who are advocating biological males um, competing against women in, in women's sports. So that's a realignment we're seeing. Um, we're, another realignment we're seeing is the left always used to pride itself on being anti-corporation. We are anti-corporate America. We're, we're for unions and we're for workers and corporations are bad. And, and that goes far, far back. Again, that, that's a long-standing thing. But now that the left has turned so strongly against free speech, the left has realized that their salvation as censors is in the private sector, the private sector where the First Amendment doesn't really apply uh, and where viewpoint discrimination is completely legal. Um, so you now have this weird specter of diehard leftists supporting the corporations and the billionaires, uh, supporting Jeff Bezos running the Washington Post and supporting Jack Dorsey when he was running Twitter and supporting Zuckerberg uh, because there, it, it, at a certain point when the left turned against free speech, the left also realized that government has to work under certain constraints that the government cannot violate First Amendment rights, and the government cannot engage in uh, blatant viewpoint discrimination, whereas the, the private sector can. So that's another realignment where the left now is more and more on the side of uh, corporate America, and especially because corporate America has been playing to the left about the transgender issue, about race, about things like that. And then you have the right, kind of some people on the right trying to revive the populism of old, the, including the economic populism, the anti-corporate, uh, crucified, don't crucify man on a cross of gold kind of thing. 
kind of uh, populism, fire and brimstone kind of stuff. So we're seeing these realignments that really have only been in hyperdrive for the last 10 years. I don't know where it's all going, but it certainly is very, uh, it's certainly very interesting. You're also seeing it in terms of race. When I was in elementary school in the 1970s, and I was in high school in the early 1980s, the left's message was uniform. It was always, don't see race. Be non-racist. Don't look at that man as a black man. Don't look at that man as an Asian. Don't look at that man as a white man. Don't see race. The left has completely reversed itself on that. Very specifically, they say now, you must see race. If you don't see race, you're a racist. You have to respond to that black man as a black man. You have to respond to that white man as a white man. You can't just respond to them as human beings. Um, you have to acknowledge race in all things. That's allowed the right, especially the mainstream right, and the Ben Shapiro right, Dennis Prager right, the GOP establishment right, allowed them to start to co-opt the don't see race thing. So now you have uh, mainstream conservatives who are the ones saying, I don't see race. Uh, I see Americans. Wave the flag. Uh, and you have leftists saying, no, race is the most important thing that any of us have. So you've got to see it. You've, you've got to respond to it. And everything in your life, from the books you read and the music you listen to, you have to filter through the prism of of race um again a realignment something all of these things would have been very different if you were to go back to the 70s when the left was still anti-corporation pro-worker pro-feminist and um uh, pro-free speech and uh and don't see race so i think a hippie if you were to pluck a hippie from a college campus in 1969 and 1970, just bring them here to this present without them seeing any of the lead up to it, they wouldn't know what the hell's going on. It would be, you know, the, the cast of characters is, would be completely different. Um, and I don't think they'd be able to understand a damn thing. It's a, it's a complete um, realignment. And I, I think in the future, it will be difficult to uh, nail down for people in the future. It'll be difficult to nail down who was left and who was right exactly. An example I give, sometimes I'll encounter people who try to put today's labels on the founding fathers. Well, that's a difficult thing to do because like, what is, what is John Adams? On the one hand, John Adams was very anti-slavery. On the other hand, he was very much a New England Puritan in terms of, of a lot of his views and his views on monarchy and his views on... Uh, it, you can't put a modern-day left-wing or right-wing label on a man like John Adams because the situation and the specifics were, were so different back then. I think that's how it's going to be. Some years from now, decades from now, people are going to look back on where we are right now, and they're not going to know what, what, who's left, who's right. That guy's saying this, but that sounds more like a left-wing point, but he's right-wing. This guy who says he's left-wing is saying this thing, but it sounds like more something like a right-wing group would say. 
I think everything's very scrambled right now. And it, it that's one of the reasons you're seeing some very abrupt changes in uh, certain well-known figures. Uh, one example that comes to mind, Bill Maher. Bill Maher, all during the President Bush, George W. Bush years, Bill Maher was very predictable. I mean, you knew where he stood on, on everything. Uh, and through the Obama years, Maher remained predictable. Um, he had started out as kind of a semi-right-leaning libertarian. I mean, in his early days, in the days of, of like his politically incorrect show. But then after 9-11, he had you know, pretty much gone over to the left quite a bit. Uh, and And now he's sort of coming back to the right. He's responding to what he sees as the left going nuts. And the left is is beginning to alienate him more and more. And you see it more and more every week. And the left has become so unforgiving of, of heretics. They're only making it worse for themselves because the more they push a guy like Bill Maher away, the more he's going to kind of go back to the sort of right-leaning libertarian he was when he first started doing political comedy. Um, so uh, the realignment is not just among groups, but also uh, individuals who are in their own way beginning to um, respond to traditional roles of what is left and what is right, uh, becoming switching up with each other and becoming things that you, you couldn't recognize. Um, so I don't know where it's all heading. I try not to prognosticate uh, because uh, you, you do that and you could look like a fool if you're wrong. So I don't know where it's all heading, but I do know there's a tremendous amount of confusion right now. And I do think people in the future, you know, 20 years, 30 years from now, will look back and say this was a very confusing time to try to figure out who fits where on the spectrum. Do you have a general theory as to why they push the privilege narrative, saying some people are in a privileged class? They almost just declare it and then move on. It's like there's not even a follow-up. When I feel like the follow-up is, hey, we're the Occupy Wall Street people. You have privilege and we're here to take stuff. We're just going to push this privilege a little longer. Once everyone recognizes it, then we'll be justified in doing the looting we've always planned on doing. Uh, do you have a general theory as to why they push the privilege narrative? Well, I, I think it's it's necessary for them in order to um, uh, make white people especially feel like they they owe, uh, like they're uh, by virtue of their skin color that they've been given all of this stuff. I think as a strategy. It's failing. Um, I think it's exactly that white privilege strategy that is pushing the Rust Belt states. Uh, well, I think it's one of the reasons the Rust Belt states went for Trump in 2016. Uh, and I don't think it's a good long-term strategy for the left to use in, in those states. But it, I think it's important that the privilege thing, which is so often race-based, Whites are accused of being privileged, but then dark-skinned blacks accuse light-skinned blacks of being privileged. Blacks often accuse Hispanics of being privileged because they say, well, a Hispanic can, can be white uh, if, if they want to. Um, so 
the privilege thing is just a way, another way to um, to going back to what I said a while ago, to just short circuit the whole notion of merit and skill. Mm. Uh, because if you're made to feel like you have what you have, not because of what you did, how smart you are, how capable you are, but because of some inborn privilege. And the government can use that, of course. Look, you know, Obama was kind of well known for never apologizing. It's one of the few things he ever apologized for, because generally he's the kind of man who would never admit a mistake. But he did apologize for the you didn't build that comment. I don't know if you recall that, but uh, Obama was talking about how if you're a small businessman, you build a business. You didn't build that. The roads uh, built it and the, the government, the taxpayer money being spent by the government building. That backfired so badly on Obama that for one of the very few times in his presidency, he actually said, I regret saying that. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, though, picked that up and kind of ran on that in uh, 2020. That, that she, she loves that way of speaking. But again, it's a way of making people who have accomplished something feel like they didn't actually accomplish it, that they either owe their skin color or they owe the government for their success. They owe everything except themselves and their their mind uh, and their stick to and their abilities. Um, they owe everything uh, but that. So it's just another way of making, trying to wear down the skilled people into feeling that they owe everybody for their success. Uh, but I do think it's a, a losing strategy in the long run. I mean, I, I, if, if it was a bad enough strategy to make Obama apologize, uh, which is a once in an eon kind of thing, then I, I think it generally is a, a flawed strategy. Now, and now we're, we're going to see what happens next year in terms of the Democratic uh, primary. Uh, we're going to see, the, I, there are a lot of people who are unhappy with Kamala Harris. There is a small chance maybe Biden might not run. I, I'm not making any, I'm not calling that at all, but I'm just saying there's a chance. Elizabeth Warren really wants to be there in the mix. And so we're going to see if uh, if she wants to bring back that whole, you didn't build that thing like she tried to three years ago. Um, we'll see if that works. But I think it's a poor strategy. Uh, the left is a little too in love these days with poor strategy. Uh, they're, they're, um, it's very funny to me that it's only been less than two years since the defund the police thing became the, the rage on the left. And now you can't find a single Democrat politician who admits they ever said it. Um, they, they're on tape saying it a hundred times over and they will deny it now uh, for the rest of their lives. And my point with that simply being that uh, I think the Democrats are pursuing a whole bunch of, of strategies that are not good for them in, in the long run. Uh, I think they're, they, a lot of these things, they're getting very bad internal advice. Um, there were obviously people in June 2020 who were telling them, oh, you've got to support to fund the police. This is the wave of the future. This is absolutely the wave of the future. And uh, a lot of times 
people get bad advice and they don't get rid of the people who gave them the, the bad advice. Now, that's just true in the entertainment industry as it is in politics. Uh, a lot of times our advisors let us down uh, and yet we find it difficult to, uh, to part ways with them. And it's true for the GOP as well, obviously. And I write about that a lot of my column. A lot of my column is actually dedicated to critiquing the right uh, in part because um, I, if the right is not functioning in a healthy way, we're really doomed. You know, we have to have some, some uh, opposing force against the left. So I do find myself sometimes critiquing the right even more than the left. But, um, but the left especially is, is following a whole bunch of policies that uh, in time they themselves are going to realize they're not necessarily uh, smart things to be doing. Not only are they no longer mentioning the defund the police, but when AOC and the squad had a chance to vote to lessen police funding, they voted to increase it because of the January 6th uh, protest that took place. So they had a chance to vote against an yeah. increase in funding. They voted for it. They used their leverage. And when asked about this, AOC pulled that the, the classic move. I'm really glad you asked me about this. Uh, that's how you know that they're terrified. She was asked yeah. about it. She goes, I'm really glad you asked me about it because um, it's, it's actually had to deal uh, with a lot of pensions that were promised to police officers. So it's really complicated. So th they voted to increase the funding once they got the shot. It's, it's just unbelievable. When it comes to uh, the concept of narratives, prevailing interpretations of past events. This is where the left holds a lot of power. The New Deal is why we need a big government domestically. Um, when it comes to uh, the Civil War and the Second World War, we do have to have uh, interventionist policies. The left um, supports uh, going into Syria. They supported a uh, lot of arms transfers into Ukraine. So when it comes to the concept of historical narratives, do you think those uh, really do hold a uh, lot of power or are they more or less just things that some academics discuss that don't really affect the modern day? Well, I think the I think they certainly do have an effect, and I will kind of go out, go out on a little bit of a limb here, slightly risky to say this, but I think one of the reasons that the left is stronger when it comes to defining or redefining a historical narrative, or even a present-day narrative, is uh, the presence of Jewish folks, both so heavily on the left and so heavily in the entertainment industry. Now, I'm saying this, of course, as a Jew who has been both in politics and the entertainment industry. So I'm, I'm not saying this as an outsider, but Jews are the absolute best storytellers that any society has. Uh, it is why Jews created Hollywood and, and to this day are still the dominant force in Hollywood, well, we are a storytelling people, um, not just to ourselves. And that's the big difference because you can say, well, that, that African Bushman over there, look at how he forms that drum circle every night and they tell stories, yeah, to themselves with their clicking noises and their, their banging. They're great storytellers and everyone, like Alice Walker and, and uh, Tony Morrison and all, they always talk about the great African storyteller, yeah. Great storytellers to their own tribe. Jews are great storytellers to the other tribes. We like to come up with stories that 
you guys are interested in. And that's one of the uh, it's one of the good things about having Jews on your team uh, because they really can spin a great yarn. And uh, they through this this um, meeting of political needs and entertainment, they can uh, make at least the young generation. They can give the young generation a whole different understanding of history, uh, even recent history, and certainly history a long time ago. Uh, and I think it does stick. I, I, I'm I'm concerned for the current young generation because I think they have been exposed to an inordinate amount of, of propaganda and slanted and biased information about America's history, even about world history. Um, and some of these people, they're, they're going to learn on their own. <coughs> they're going to learn other, other points of view, but a lot of them, a lot of them won't. Um, and it seems like the left has, since Trump, uh, gone into office. The left has really been uh, very strong in this message to their young people uh, that, like, you're supposed to be angry at your parents at Thanksgiving dinner. Like, oh, it's Thanksgiving time, time to go home to your racist uncle and your transphobic dad uh, and your Confederate grandma. And, uh, you know, just you hate these people and you don't have to like them. Uh, and that's yet again a wedge issue, wedge between this young person and their parents or grandparents. Um, but the young people are being being fed a great deal of of uh, propaganda that they get from uh, both fiction and nonfiction media. And I, I do believe that in the long run, it it can make a a definite difference in how people's uh, views are formed. Uh, I mean, especially when when you look at some of, of what's being taught in public schools these days, that certainly colors young people's views of race relations in this country. Uh, and it, it, whether you're black or white or whatever in between, a lot of kids are coming out of elementary school these, these days with an idea that America is hopeless and racist and um, and it, it, nothing but genocide, a, a history of genocide and brutality. Um, of course, that's going to have a long-term impact on that generation. Um, but you know, public schools, not my favorite thing in the world anyway. And uh, I would always be the first one to recommend homeschooling or at the very least charter schools or something like that. But uh, I didn't. I, w I was in the LA public schools twelve years. My my whole my whole time in school was in the LA public schools. I had one good teacher. Twelve years. I had one good teacher, and it's probably the only time I ever learned anything. Um, most of the time, I was just uh, screwing around. Whatever I learned, I learned here at home uh, on my own. Uh, so, uh, but you know, obviously, people are always going to. There's always going to be people. Uh, sending their kids to public schools. And I do think it poses a threat to the integrity, the cohesiveness of the country, because the propaganda is very, very strong. I'm in favor of 
people in school learning about everything, but learning about everything, uh, especially history, learning it uh, from uh, a non-propagandistic point of view. Learn, learn about slavery, learn all the evils about slavery, learn why slavery was happening, uh, look at all sides of the issue, which doesn't mean advocating all sides of the issue. It's a very big uh, misunderstanding a lot of people have these days when you say you've got it in order to learn about something, you have to look at all sides of it. Sometimes people, especially on the left, mistake that for meaning, oh, so you're going to say the slave owners were right. No, I'm not saying that anyone's right, but if you're going to understand why anything happened, you have to understand why it was happening and why the people doing it were doing it. Uh, the same, you know, same thing teaching about World War II history and teaching about uh, the history, the entire history of the Third Reich. You have to go into uh, why it was happening, which is not the same as saying you agree with it, that it was happening, that you, don't, you agree with what people were doing. But you still have to understand basic human motivation. Otherwise, history simply becomes the kind of simple-minded propaganda that we're being taught, that our kids are being taught today, which is uh, this man bad, this man good, uh, good versus evil, and uh uh, it, it's it's an insult to the field, and I say that as someone who's been in the history field a very long time, and it's a tremendous insult insult to the field to leave out all of the nuances. Excellent point. And not only uh, is it immoral, but it does end up backfiring. For example, when I went to Hebrew school uh, till I was thirteen, I was always told that May fifteenth, nineteen forty eight, was the day that the UN voted for a bunch of Jews in this place called Israel to just have a government. I wasn't told about Nakba Day, the violent uh, removal of 750,000 Palestinians and the uh, mass murdering that took place years afterwards. I wasn't told about the Six Day War, wasn't told about um, you know, the Kana massacre at the UN building. So I felt so tricked after all this time, after thinking America or uh, invented poverty in the 1800s with the Industrial Revolution. Uh, Jefferson's uh, generation invented slavery. I literally took those as more or less truth statements because they were just uh, said to me in such a confident way. And I was a progressive for so long and it just backfired. So, uh, I mean, not only is it the right thing to do, do it for yourself. I mean, uh, another example of how stories can get so caught up with people, Deborah Messing said that you are a Holocaust denier. However, on page 295 of your book, you have Appendix A. What can people learn from Appendix A of Republican Party Animal? <laughs> well, you know, there's, there's calling me denier, which people still do, not, not as many these days, but they still, I mean, the ignorant people, the only people who call me a denier are the people who've never actually read my book and Deborah Messing never read my book. She just wanted to ban it. Um, there, a, a, a denier, and there are there are Holocaust deniers. Uh, and in fact, I, I debate them in my videos all the time. All the time. Um, the, the appendix to my book is my historical thesis, which really, if, if you want to put it in the simplest terms, is kind of a little bit straight down the middle. Both extremes are wrong in terms of the tug of war between the deniers and the ADL types. The ADL types who say it was six million and not, and not a person less, 
and uh, there were gas chambers uh, in every building, and there was a complete genocide order. And then you have the deniers who say there were no gas chambers anywhere. At most, it was 200,000, 280,000 who died of typhus, and um, they, no Jews were ever targeted for killing. Well, history is not the same as the principle. Uh, what I mean by that is if you hold a principle, like, for example, one of my principles is I am a free speech absolutist. I simply don't believe in speech suppression, whether you want to call it censorship or whatever. I don't believe in it. I don't believe that there's ever any reason to stop someone from speaking. Um, I don't believe that words kill. Uh, and I think that a healthy society is one in, in which everybody gets to talk. Okay, that's a principle. Uh, there's really, for me, there's no compromise on that because it is a principle. And if you hold a principle, you shouldn't compromise on it. History, on the other hand, is oftentimes compromise in terms of both sides tend to be a little right and a little wrong. When you have extremes about any historical topic, generally, both extremes have certain things that they get right and certain things that they don't because of their own biases. They don't want to face those things. They don't want to accept those things. Most of the time, when you look at any historical, at any, especially any controversial or divisive historical topic, when you look at it rationally in the cold light of day, and you will see both extremes get a little right and a little wrong, you end up with something that is generally uh, down the middle. Now, down the middle doesn't please anybody. And that, that's, that's one of the reasons that the, the deniers don't like me, but the ADL also still really doesn't like me because the down the middle thing is not pleasing to anybody. My, my general figure for Jewish dead in terms of entirely, uh, both for murder and everything else during the war, is about 3 to 3.5 million. One has to be vague because we only have a census up until April 1945, a census of, of dead Jews. We know that as of April 1943, if I, if I said 45, I meant 43, we know that as of April 43, there were 2.4 million dead Jews. So now we have to, in, in terms of getting from April 43 to April 45, a lot of guesswork is involved. So that's why I can put the figure at no lower than 3 million and no higher than 3.5. Well, that doesn't please anybody. The ADL way too low for them. The deniers, it's way too high for them. But it's it's factually based to the best of my ability because you have a certain amount of guesswork after that 2.4 million uh, figure. Uh, some camps like Auschwitz have been wrongly called an extermination camp. Auschwitz was not an extermination camp. It doesn't mean people didn't die there. People died there. But uh, it's the difference between a camp that is purposely for killing. Now, that was a camp like Treblinka. Treblinka was a camp that was purposely for killing. Auschwitz was a labor and civilian internment camp that uh, was in 1942, summer of 42, was racked by typhus. Lots of people died, and the commandant of Auschwitz began uh, euthanizing, uh, as he would put it, uh, murder would be another way to put it, uh, but began killing inmates in, 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 to try to control the typhus epidemic, but the camp was not designed as an extermination camp, and the renovations that happened in Auschwitz in 1943 were actually to make the camp more sanitary uh, because it was a major center of, of labor 
for the Nazis, and they didn't want everybody dying because they needed the labor. By 43, the war was not going their way anymore. They absolutely badly needed the labor. So, again, you end up with a thesis that wins you no friends. To Deborah Messing, to the ADL, I'm still a denier. To deniers, I'm an ADL plant, an ADL agent, uh, a shill, a gatekeeper, whatever they want to call me. All I can do, as I do in the book, as I do in the appendix, present the facts, uh, present the uh, the sources, the original documents as best I can, and uh, let the cards shake out where they will. And if they shake out in the middle, then they shake out in the middle. If they had shaken out at either of the extremes, I would say so. But generally, that's not the case in the Holocaust, and generally it's just not the case in, in, with history in general. Um, the uh, again, you take any divisive issue, civil war. Well, the, the <clears throat> Northerners are always going to say that everything they did was perfect and they didn't do anything bad. Southerners are going to say the same thing. Uh, it's always going to just kind of come down to the, the middle. When it comes to um, critiquing the National Socialists of Germany, you never shy away. In fact, you had said that there was a gas chamber program in a place called Knotzweiler, I think. Uh, is that how it's pronounced? Yeah, and Nazweiler was a uh, technically a French POW, a Nazi camp for French POWs in Alsace-Lorraine, and uh, the Struthof Nazweiler camp had a gas chamber that was built because a uh, uh, a doctor at the um, nearby anatomical institute wanted to collect Jewish skulls. And he had about 90-something Jews sent there from Auschwitz, and they were gassed so that their skulls would not be damaged from bullet wounds. Well, this is all very documented. You see, when, when the Nazis did things, they documented them. And uh, every single document covering the Nazweiler gassing is there. They, they, uh, they used an SS tear gas training room, like the kind of thing police today, SWAT teams, train in where, where you go in there, they release tear, tear gas, you got to learn how to put on your gas mask and exit the room. So they took a room that was already built for gas, had a ventilation system, and uh, they changed it around so that you could introduce a lethal gas into the room. And they have, we have the transportation orders, the construction orders, we have the, the uh, queues arriving from Auschwitz to the camp, we have them being gassed. We even have the bodies because this freaking doctor who wanted the skulls, once he got those like 92 dead Jews, he lost interest. And by the time the war was over, two years later, some of those bodies were still in cold storage at the anatomical institute. He, he hadn't even defleshed them yet. He wanted his skulls. He didn't even play with his skulls. Typical, just like a kid. He asks for a toy, begs for a toy. The parents get him the toy. And he doesn't even take it out of the damn box. Um, that 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 his name was Doctor August Hurt. What a jerk he was! Gets all those uh, Jewish skulls and doesn't do a damn thing with them. Um, and in fact, he killed himself as as the Allies were approaching his anatomical institute. And he was like, "I should have defleshed those skulls uh, because now I really don't have any way to talk my way out of this." So he he shot himself. Uh, ironically, damaging his own skull in the process. An ironic end to a bad man. Uh, 
uh, his his own skull ended up being the one that got damaged. One of my favorite parts in the book, besides the appendix, is hearing a uh, what Michael Shermer thought was a secret uh, phone call between you two. You actually recorded it. You've exposed him as a total liar. I thought that was great. I don't want to go into that because I want people to find copies of the book or find a PDF and read it for themselves because it's just so it's so enjoyable. I really am hoping that maybe sometime this year I can announce having a new publisher because I want to update the book. A lot happened. Now, that book was written in 2013, published in early 2014. A lot has happened since then, and I'd love to add a chapter or two to kind of bring everything up to date. So I'm, I'm hoping that I, I can maybe be able to announce that before year's end. At the front of the book, uh, you quote Gary Sinise saying, God bless you, see you at Dick Cheney's. Did you ever meet Dick Cheney and do you have any good stories about him? Well, sure. Oh, well, that was during my period when I was known as David Stein for about 15 years. Um, that was during the period I helped run a group called Friends of Abe, the Hollywood Hollywood conservative Republican group uh, that was founded by Gary Sinise. And yeah, you name the person, Condi Rice, Dick Cheney, wow. John Boehner, Karl Rove, neocons for the most, but we were, we were a very neocon organization. And these guys, especially Cheney and Rove, when they would come to hang out with us, we'd always have a big banquet and they'd say a few words and then we'd all hobnob. It was very distasteful. To me, at least, because uh, I was not at that same level of neoconism that most of the other people in the room were. But it was very distasteful because Rove and Cheney would always bring along these disfigured amputee veterans from Afghanistan and, and Iraq. And it was, what made it distasteful, it was kind of like these guys were saying, because then they would... Cheney would, would get up there, Rove would get up there and say, give a, give a big hand, give a standing ovation to private first class whatever uh, who lost three of his limbs and there'd be this guy in a wheelchair blinded from shrapnel. And it was like showing off, look what, like Cheney saying, look what I did to this guy. Aren't you happy? Uh, don't you love me? I, my, my war uh, that I fought so hard for, and now this, this kid, he's never going to walk again. He's never going to see again. But, but give him a hand. He deserves a hand. Oh, and give me a hand, too, because I brought this all about. It was very dark. Um, the group kind of reflected Gary Sinise's take on conservatism. Uh, Gary Sinise is basically just a military support the military guy, support the foreign wars guy. Gary Sinise never took any positions on domestic issues. Uh, you couldn't get him to say five words about, you name it, about gay rights, abortion, uh, tax policy, anything. He wouldn't talk about anything domestic at all. But if you got him started about Afghanistan or Iraq, he, he, would, he would just keep going. Um, it's one of the reasons that it, Friends of Abe dissolved when Trump uh, looked certain to get the nomination because the hierarchy of Friends of Abe was very much against Trump's focus on things like immigration and uh, bringing jobs back and confronting the Chinese and also the fact that Trump didn't seem gung-ho about foreign wars. So the, the group couldn't really get behind Trump. However, the rank and file members 
quite a few of the rank and file members were very pro-Trump. So the the general solution to that was simply to dissolve the group. And uh, so the group dissolved at the beginning of 2016, right around the time that it seemed fairly inevitable that Trump was going to get the nod. I've always liked Larry Elder. Is he a nice guy uh, off camera? Well, I'm biased because he and I were friends, very, very close friends for several years. But then when the revelations about me being David Cole came out, he just cut me off cold turkey. Sadly, when he owed me money for some jobs I did for him. So um, I'd like Larry Elder again if he paid me 3500 bucks uh, that has been owed now since 2013. Um, in fact, I was kind of looking forward to if he had won during the Governor uh, Gavin Newsom recall, if Larry Elder had won, uh, I would have gone right up to Sacramento there and I would have demanded a check. Uh, I would have I would have hung out in the lobby there at the rotunda and uh, waited for Larry Elder to come walking through, and I would have demanded a thirty five hundred dollar check because I don't I don't like being stiffed for any money, but thirty five hundred dollars um, for a couple of commercials I produced for him for his book. Um, thirty five hundred dollars is not small change. I don't let that stuff go. I'm the kind of guy who, if I get if there's even the smallest problem with my Amazon Prime grocery order, I'm getting a <laughs> refund. I am on the phone not only getting a refund, but browbeating the people into giving me like a $10 credit for the next order. I mean, these, this rutabaga is starting to brown. Uh, so not only do I want the money back for the rutabaga, but I want $10 towards my next order because I feel that the, as a Jew, this is the greatest anti-Semitism I have ever experienced in my life. This rutabaga, is, this, this is a rutabaga they would have served me at Treblinka. This is an insult, an absolute insult, and I'm not going to stand for it. And before, before you know it, I've got like a $25 credit because they just want to get rid of me. The point being, I'm not the kind of guy who's going to walk away for $3,500. <laughs> I know. I'm wrong about that. Uh, m mishandled groceries after all we've been through really this this is what i have to pay we escaped europe for this uh, when it comes to someone like cheney i was a uh, big supporter of iraq and afghanistan and then to see the taliban take over after a 20-year war they took over in 11 days to see al-qaeda uh take over iraq and so many deaths so many uh displaced um usually when i do something bad i will apologize uh, when it comes to people like Cheney, you, it almost seems like, well, if they were really well-meaning and just mistaken, or they were put in a tough position, I think we'd see a little more humility. We'd see some more apologies, maybe. Uh, do you think people like Cheney and the neocons, in this case specifically, are good guys who are put in tough positions or more or less opportunists? Yeah, I don't, I don't think they're good guys. I think they're they are people with a very strong agenda. I do think that they went into Iraq thinking it would be a cakewalk. In other words, I, I don't think they believed that they were going to get into the mire that they got into. Um, but I also don't think they thought things through. Um, they had an agenda that I, in, to their mind, there was, it was gonna, they were gonna successfully reform Iraq and then they were gonna go into Iran. They were going to go into Syria. Um, they had all of these 
far-reaching plans that they didn't really second-guess. Uh, and uh, kind of going back to what we talked about earlier about surrounding yourself with bad advice, yes, men, um, I don't think they have any humility. Uh, I've, I've met Cheney quite a few times, and I don't believe he possesses any humility. I don't think that Carl uh, Rove possesses any humility. Um, sometimes there, there's that uh, line from Richard III, sin will pluck on sin, meaning the more you dig yourself into a hole doing bad things, the, the less you can ad admit it, and the more you just have to keep digging, the more you just have to keep going, because the bad things you've done start chasing you. So you got to run faster and faster, because if you stop to be introspective for even a moment, all those bad things will catch up with you. So that, that's, that's why I don't think they will ever apologize. I don't think they can. I don't think they can admit it. I think they just have to keep going and going and going um, as, though they, as though they've always been right and they have nothing to even rethink. Excellent point. Yeah, Dean Atchison always called them situations of strength, where you can more or less create an issue just to display the amount of strength you have. And I think right. that's exactly what they wanted with Iraq. Bill Crystal went on C-SPAN, confident as, as anyone's ever said anything. Well, this is not going to be some Vietnam. This is a war that's going to last roughly about two months, he said. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, just just un, uh, uh, unbelievable uh, stuff there. The book yeah, and is, I, I believe they had talked themselves into believing that. I mean, I really mm -hmm. do. I think that they have, when you're in a bubble like that and everyone's saying the same thing and everyone's bolstering each other, I really do think they had, they believed it. Um, and that's, that's even more dangerous than someone who's lying because someone who really believes that kind of stuff is, is not going to second guess at all. Whereas someone who's just a devious liar is at least going to say, okay, are my lies working or do I have to moderate them a little bit? Every liar thinks about that at some point. They're always gauging the effectiveness of their lies because you lie for a purpose. And so you always have to keep saying, are my lies achieving that purpose? But true believers, people who've really sold themselves on something, they're far more dangerous. The book is Republican Party Animal by David Cole. Best of luck finding it. eBay, uh, maybe, maybe Craigslist, uh, used bookstores, uh, links to Mr. Cole's column as well as uh his twitter in the description i d can i ask you two more quick questions of course do you have any uh fun or just interesting pap buchanan stories because he's one of my heroes uh i wouldn't say fun uh, i i knew pat and ironically not from tacky mag I, I don't know him these days but i knew him when he was making his presidential run in the primary uh, in the early 90s, and I knew his sister, Bay Buchanan, uh, but I, Pat is, is a brilliant man who has contributed greatly to the discourse in this country. Uh, he's a true intellect. I'm honored to, to share byline you know, this, on the same website as him. But uh, the times I met him, it was always just very ins inspiring intellectual talk. Uh, we would sometimes talk about strategy. And one of the, one of the one of the few times, one of the few things I remember 
is um, when he was trying to mount a primary challenge uh, to Bush, um, he was caught slightly off guard by a question um, from, I don't think it was even like a credentialed reporter. I think it was like a student reporter. I think he might have been on campus somewhere. You'll have to forgive me. This is a fuzzy memory that's going back 30 years. Um, but I remember, the re I think it was a student reporter who asked him a question about if you're so pro-life, how come you and your wife don't have kids? And Buchanan snapped at the reporter. Now, yeah, it's a personal question. Of course, it's a personal question. But I was talking with with his sister and the sister. I was talking with Pat's sister and Pat's strategist. Pat wasn't there for this particular conversation, but I, I humbly suggest, and I, I said that um, these are the kind of questions Pat's going to get. And as insulting as it is to ask something personal like that, it, it's never a good look to, to snap too much. I mean, that, that's, that's what always used to sink Bob Dole before Bob Dole finally got his nod in 96. But when, when Dole was trying to get the nomination in elections passed, Dole would have a habit of snapping at people. Uh, he would have a habit of that there's that time when he was, uh, I think Dan Rather, I think it was Dan Rather, had both Dole and Bush on remote, two separate screens. And Bush Sr., George H.W. Bush, comes on and he's like, well, nice to be with you, Dan. It's such a beautiful day in this country. And then Dole comes on and says, tell Bush to stop lying about my record. Well, one guy looks friendly and one guy looks like a snappy old man. So the only piece of advice I ever gave Pat Buchanan, but not to his face, but his sister and, and the, the uh, strategist was uh, uh, be ready for those personal questions. And you just don't want to look like the media wants to paint you as a monster. The media wants to paint you as a racist and uh, anti-Semite and uh, all, everything else. So they want to make you look like a beast. So uh, sometimes you just got to get it. You, you get a personal question you don't like, but you just got to smile through it. So that, but that's the closest I have to a Buchanan story. Most of the Libertarian Institute audiences between uh, mid-20s, mid-30s, what advice would you give yourself? Because you got a lot of stories in here. What advice would you give yourself if you could go back and talk to yourself at 20, 30 years old? Uh, this is, I don't want this to sound conceited, but generally I kind of always did what I felt was right at the time. Um, I don't think that there's anything, if I could go back, I really don't think there's anything I would second guess. Um, especially, I mean, putting my personal life aside, because I've made nothing but mistakes in my personal life, but just looking in terms of my professional life, everything I did, I would probably do it the, uh, the exact same way. Um, I would probably... I would probably try to, uh, I would have, I'd try to put out more content in the early 90s because I feel like I never got a chance to really finish 
some of the work I was doing back back then. Now I'm finishing it now, and it's finished in in, in, in the book. But I think if I had done if put out more content in the early 90s, people would have had a better idea of my positions. But again, I can't blame myself for that because you go back to 91, 92, 93. There was no internet. There were no personal blogs. There was no social media. You always had to have a middleman. If you're going to publish anything, release a video or a book. You always had to have someone, a producer, I mean a distributor, an editor, a publishing company as a middleman. So it was not really my call how much content I could put out. Um, but generally, I, I sort of did things the way I felt was the right way. And I look back and I, I don't think I second guess anything. Check out his column at Talkie Mag, link in the description below. Find out why Phil Donahue called this man the Antichrist. Very interesting stuff. David Cole, thank you so much for your time, sir. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Keith. I've enjoyed every minute of it. Um, what are the... Uh, I can't tell if this is a combination of Keith Knight's question, I mean, a continuation of it, or a new question where I didn't put the person's name. Uh, what are the usual pieces of evidence historians refer to before declaring genocide a proven historical event, i.e., how would one prove Pol Pot, Mao, Stalin, Ottoman Empire, Japanese Empire, etc.? Well, a lot of it, since you're never going to get millions of bodies, it just never happens. Either the bodies are are burned or they're they're conveniently buried uh, in in places where they never dug up. But um, you're, you're never going to. It's never by counting dead bodies. Uh, it's primarily by, um, well, in the case of, of the Khmer Rouge, uh, the Khmer Rouge was only in power for a very brief time. So when the Khmer Rouge left and every dictatorial uh, entity is replaced by another and, and the new one needs to badmouth the old one, so it was in, when the Khmer Rouge was kicked out, um, there was a, an attempt made to just collect names of people who were dead and missing. So a lot of, in that case, I mean, there were certainly bones, there were bodies, there were a lot of killing fields where skeletons and bodies existed. But a lot of it in the case of the Khmer Rouge, because the Khmer Rouge lasted so briefly, everybody who lost someone remembered it. You know, it's not like decades had gone by and, and new generations had come up. So a lot of it taking names of people basic census of taking names of people who were missing, disappeared. The case of the Soviet Union, uh, Robert Conquest basically uh, just had to do like demographic uh, comparisons, like how big a town should be, what its population should be based on the natural reproduction growth of, of a particular town, a particular city, and so a lot of it's demographic guesswork. With Mao, it's even more difficult because there's never been an end to the Chinese Communist uh, Empire. I mean, it's not like the Soviet Union ever collapsed. So it's a lot more difficult. There are people who have done some very intense research uh, using, in some cases, internal Chinese documents to try to, to try to figure out how many people died, both in terms of um, the Cultural Revolution, you know, people purposely killed, and people who died in the famines. It's, it's very thick, not easy to explain, and I would not be able to really uh, paraphrase other people's work correctly. It is just difficult to... That's why those ranges for Mao's death toll are so wild. 
They start at like 20 million and they end at 80 million, and people just kind of pick the one they want. Um, you can't be, it's it, very hard to be specific about that. But there's a sense, when, when there's a general consensus that even though we can't say if it's 20, 40, 60, 80 million, but when there's a general consensus that millions have died, then it's declared a genocide.